Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, diet time is here. That's right, we're talking about Scream 3 on Kill by Kill. Well, greetings and salutations of that troll pal Patrick Henry, coming to you once again from Hollywood, land of dreams and crimes. This is the Kill by Kill podcast, where we are dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. We're going to unpack all the gory details of Scream 3 in one episode, because we're not fucking breaking it up. We don't care to, uh, in the hopes that a, a, a starlet's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes that we can make at their expense. And as always, there is only one person I trust that if I make a snide remark in her direction, she'll turn around and say, fuck you, so I can say, fuck you too. Where's Roman? The one, the only, Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing today, Gina? I'm good. I've got my my Creed t-shirt. My Creed poster, okay. my Creed CD. Yeah. Uh huh. I, I am ready Are to all talk these about. Brought two, to me by Creed. I, I I am ready to talk about two thousand Scream Three. Scream for Creed. <laughs> the Creed of Screams uh, is what people on the street call it. Um, do you remember a Creed poster in, in Sydney's room in the 1996 film? Because I, I do I, not. I sure don't. Because that is the sort of thing that you and I have made a little bit of bread and a little bit of butter making fun of. And I think if there was a fucking Creed poster in her goddamn room, we would have spent, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes talking about it. If I recall, she had an Indigo Girls poster. Oh, which, which well. did not seem... I think at the time we said that that did not seem like something she would listen to. Right. Yeah. But Creed seems even less likely something she would listen to. <laughs> I don't know what Sydney Prescott listens to, but is neither Indigo Girls nor Creed. It certainly is not Creed, and that is one of the oddest posters of any any band I've ever seen. You have the lead singer who is perpetually shirtless, wearing the largest flamed bowling shirt. And then the bassist is standing next to him in just like nipple piercings. That's all he's got. (laughs) (laughs) What a fucking odd way to like, hey, listen to this band where we screech about Jesus. Don't mind the bassist. He's dressed in pantyhose. (laughs) 2000, baby. (laughs) what a time to be alive and we were uh but i don't want to go too far here gina because we are not alone that's right we have a special guest uh he is a professional therapist by day but by night he is the co-host of both the pod and the pendulum and psychotherapy the one the only mike snoonian how are you doing today mike hello i am the creed of silver chair of bush bands basically (laughs) i'm doing man Early 2000 butt rock. What a time to be alive. Got, got, oh. a, got a little Seven Mary 3 there. Oh, no. Oh, wow. <laughs> give me Ooh. a little Power Man, Power Man 2000. <laughs> Whatever the fuck that was. <laughs> oh, my God. goodness. My goodness. Uh. I am doing fantastic. And I am really excited to join the show tonight to defend... Scream three. <laughs> because it's gonna, it's gonna need someone one, had Mike. to do it. It's, gonna someone's going to have to defend it because I certainly won't be doing def- it. Um, defend the indefensible. God bless you. Wow. 
Um, this would be evidence in in court, to be honest with you. It is sadly devoid of verve and purpose of life. There's a lot of things wrong with it that they were able to rescue in Scream 2, but not here. And it certainly doesn't help that the person who came up with three quarters of the Scream movies is not present for this one. That doesn't really help. It doesn't help that they scuttled what they had planned because of uh, Columbine. So right. like, oh, fuck that movie. Let's make it a completely different movie. I wonder if if the eventual screenwriter, uh, Aaron Kruger, got the role like, Wes Craven's, I've been successful with Ron Kruger. Why not another? <laughs> Work that sure. magic again. What can go wrong? <laughs> Boy, this is a real weird period for Craven because it's obvious that he has a ton of technical skill at this point. Like his ability to make a movie has caught up with his imagination, right? He can transform material into Cracker Jack entertainment. It's well within his grasp, well within his, his ability. But I think almost anybody would be somewhat stymied by, for the second time in a row, the screen movie you set out to make just gets the rug pulled out of it mm-hmm. right before you're supposed to film it. And on top of that, that means that your star is no longer really going to be in your movie. She can only show up for 20 days of a nine-week shoot. And all of a sudden, you don't have a lead. And you transfer all of the stuff that would have gone to her now to two other characters who don't really serve that function normally. And things are just out of balance. And then you, on, on the flip end of it, I think the wildest part about this motion picture is that it essentially serves as an indictment of one of the executive producers of it. That this is basically, here's the case against Harvey Weinstein, the movie. I love that about this movie. I love that almost two decades before the chickens came home to roost for Weinstein, you have a... Uh, pr- uh, director that it, that is basically laying the case out against him yeah. right away. Like this is stealthily a movie saying this is who, this is who we're involved with here, and it's right under his nose. And uh, you have to imagine it went over his head, or this would never, or, you know, because we never feel like we're the antagonist in our own story. Right. Um, so otherwise, you don't think. I don't think this movie would have ever seen you know, the light of day as it was, would have been like a third reboot of what the third movie was supposed to be. He knew something was up because part of the scuttling here is not only what the plot was originally supposed to be, but as the original script that Kruger wrote was, is that there are two killers. Mm-hmm. We we have one who is, is revealed to be Nev Campbell's long lost half brother. And then we have the actress who is playing her in the movie who at in the original version of her was actually a classmate of hers and Mm. wants to supersede her not only on screen, but then in life, these things sort of make sense. But when you take one of those away and he, and for whatever reason, the Weinstein said, Oh no, she can't be one of the killers. In my mind, that's saying, Oh, we can't have an actress like take control of a situation and strike back. That I think is what they said no to. And they let the other part slide, which is weird as fuck. And you know, you know what I, when I was watching this movie, 
and I was thinking to myself, hey, now I have to I have to say this was a first time watch for me. Yeah. I, I had not I have not seen I had not seen Scream 3. I still haven't seen Scream 4 yet. So I'm watching it and I'm thinking, well, there must be some reason that Randy's sister shows up. Wouldn't it be kind of cool? Oh, look, it's Wiener Dog from, from yeah. Welcome to the Dollhouse. Wouldn't wouldn't it be cool if it turned out she was the killer and and you know getting revenge for for her brother's death? Yeah. No, no, she's she's gone. She doesn't show up again. She no. she just pops up almost literally out of nowhere like a jack in the box to to get them a videotape and then you know bye now see you later. Yeah, she just shows up in apparently Randy's old outfit. It's what it looks like. They just like put on big boys pants and the craziest top you have and some yellow sunglasses like you're a vampire or going to a shooting range. You're Randy's sister. And then she says Woodsboro in a way that I've never heard it pronounced before. You must well, come back to Woodsboro. Well, well, she's from New Jersey. <laughs> it's hard to wrap your, your R's and O's around Woodsboro with a Jersey accent. I wonder if there was a version of the script where Jason Muse, who pops oh up. Oh, my God. Um, Jesus minute, minute 14 minutes and 30 seconds into his 15 minutes. If he is the <laughs> if he is the uh, one of the two killers, if there is a version out there floating around. Who knows? That this uh. movie is so very, very 2000. Yes. yes. With the, with the, with the Creed right references and the the jay and silent bob cameo and fucking jenny mccarthy in it for five minutes <laughs> you know and, it, and it's just like god you were reminding you were reminding me of only the very worst aspects of early 21st century pop culture <laughs> why are you doing this to me it's funny because the first two movies are like references uh they basically just reference horror movies over and over. I mean, they basically are, are statements on horror movies. And this third movie feels like it's a statement or a look back on the first two movies. Yeah. Like they're meta about the actual first, not just the first two Scream movies, but, you know, the behind the scenes coming and goings as well of the movie. Like it's really commenting on itself. Yes. And in some ways it feels like a very odd victory lap at times as well for a movie like look what we you know because obviously all three of these movies are very successful mm -hmm. and it feels like a, a victory lap going look what we were able to pull off yeah it feels to me very uh, the word i would use to describe it is smug mm. it's, yeah. it, it's very pleased with itself yes it, 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 it at the very least it's putting on that front and it doesn't help that i think anytime a, a movie sort of puts an eye towards Hollywood, everyone gets instantly 15 times more cynical. And in reality, people aren't that dire about going to work here. Right. Yeah, I didn't like, need I didn't need a scream movie where all the characters hate each other. Yes. I I I I did not need, you know, them falling into the usual slasher movie trope of wisecrack, 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 you know, stalk away, get killed. Um, I was just going to say, it goes back to the thing, Gina, that you've pointed out a couple of times whenever we've traveled down the 2000s. And even though this is right at the cusp, this is the influence of reality TV on horror movies where all of a sudden they go, not only are these people mean, but they're, they have to be mean in a witty way, which, which weaves its way through one and two in a, in a very 
interesting way. And here it's just openly crass and jerky. Like everyone's a fucking jerk. Yeah. It's not even the actors. It's, it's, it's uh, Patrick Dempsey is a police detective <laughs> and, and you know, he's fine. His character's okay. Although he's like practically doing like the, like Tex Avery, you know, you know, wolf howling when Neb Campbell shows up. He's a wooga 24 sevens. But, but he's got this partner who's just a fucking asshole for no reason just the worst everybody just you know just insulting everyone and rolling his eyes and just like dude you're investigating a serial killer so he's off that this guy with this great hair is his partner like it comes down to that he couldn't be more annoyed at having to do his job He he constantly feels like he's trying out a Henny Youngman routine, like basically take my victim, please, type of deal. Like just, you know. One of these days like, I'm gonna take this murder case and boom zap right to the moon. Yes. Just uh just total disdain for and, everything. And like and everybody's an asshole to Dewey, and it's like, man, yeah. this this man has been murdered six times. <laughs> you show some respect for Dewey. Honestly, I mean, and they're just like open dicks. So like everyone he walks into contact with dies. It's like, well, that's the true of two other people in that triumvirate. Like they're all in the same everyone around us dies, you know, crew. I'm sorry to say it. You know, it's like if you don't want to be around him, then why did you hire him to work on the film set? I, I will say, and I know we'll get into it when we get to the character, but I would say that Sydney, by the end of this movie, has a little taste of the killing of her own. Like, she has she has Roman incapacitated, and she's like, now I will stab you in the chest yeah. at this point. Um, so by the third movie, like, Sydney's got a bit of the bloodlust in her, I would say. And well, I was waiting for her to say, because the setup here is that Roman who's the killer here is directing stab three. So she stabs him twice in the back and he falls on the ground and she's like, Oh, what movie were you making again? And then stabs him in the chest. But wouldn't it be better if he said stab three and then she, and then she stabs him the third time. Like that's there. (laughs) I'm not a fucking genius, but that that's how that shit is supposed to work. And everyone is like, an inch away from something that works and it's just all discombobulated. Mm -hmm. People are just out of control. And that that's before, that's before we, we get to Courtney Cox's bangs. (laughs) Where do we start? Why are they so close to the crown of her head? Yeah, that's a I, that's a hairstyling accident. That that's not a that's not a deliberate choice. I, I I don't know why they just didn't give her extensions or or a wig, a wig. but 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 put her in the, a wig. They are they are distracting. Yeah. They're, they're just you can put if you could put real you could put in a fall in the shape of bangs and it would have worked better. Like it's so weird to see the kid from Deliverance walk around in red leather pants in this movie and go, oh, no, 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 that's Courtney Cox. That is a bad look on a very attractive person. Like, that's that's murder. Remember when we saw J-Lo's eyebrows in Anaconda? Right. And we're like, oh, someone hated her? That's, that's the feeling I get. Well, yes. I, I, I think that a big part of this movie was, well, we need to, we need to, to knock back Gail a few pegs. 
Yeah. So, you know, we'll, we'll have it turn out that, you know, Dewey's back to hating her again, but he also still loves her too. But, you know, he still kind of hates her a little bit because she didn't want to stick around Woodsboro. Like, <laughs> why would he at this point? I mean, if, if I have been <laughs> stabbed, shot, thrown down a flight of stairs, whatever the hell this poor man has been through in this town, you know, I'm picking up and getting out of Dodge. That town's got some very bad mojo for me. Yeah, and it's not like he can continue to be a police officer at this point. Like, everyone tells him that. Like, your sister died there. Just yeah, the fucking sister moved died, to New York. I mean, he's, he's what? His, he's almost 30 by this point? He doesn't need to be staying there for his parents or anything. <laughs> no. I mean, so, like, he, he you know gets together with Parker Posey, who is playing Gail in the movie. They are mm-hmm. completely... I don't buy them as a couple at all. Um no. But, um... And so, like, you know, they're, you know, being shitty to Gail. And then Gail, the son, just can't take the idea that he's with someone else now. So she's following him around and, like, listening in outside their house. I'm like, come on, this is stuff that she would not do. No. She would not no. embarrass herself this way to to try to get the man she loves back. She just would not. Where is all the character development that we saw in Scream 2 evidenced here yeah she was she would, she would quietly stew you know, you know throw off a couple barb remarks and be done with it she yeah. was, she she would not be degrading herself to get him back i think where it fits for the character though is like it's a character that is very much at a crossroads and doubting herself like you see in the first movie she had her first big break with her first book and she felt like somebody on the rise and she had that confidence of a person that was on the rise. And that continues into the second movie, you know, in the third movie, you, you see with her introduction uh, when she has like the Dr. Loomis and Rob Zombie's Halloween moment where she's on the lecture circuit. And instead of being doused in adulation, like she has audience members that are openly questioning her journalistic ethical standards. And you see that, like I think where Courtney Cox does a really good job is like, you can see that self doubt worn in her face. Parker Posey makes the comment like, sorry, 60 minutes two didn't work out, but now you have like what essentially would have been like a, not even an entertainment, it would have been like a precursor to TMZ television, like just tabloid journalism. And that's not who Gail Weathers sees herself as. So, you know, you can see that character, like she's been taken down a couple pegs. So now when she sees, you know, her ex, on the rebound and with another person and kind of like fitting in pretty well to, you know, all aside from Patrick Warburton bringing him down a few pegs, like he seems to kind of fit in and, you know, he, he looks good. I think at this point, like David Arquette, like actually buffed up a little bit. It looks like for this role. He definitely buffed up Um, in his cheeks. I don't know. (laughs) You know, this is in the middle um, of his wrestling career. So, It is. It is. It's right around the time that he's going to absolutely destroy the WCW by becoming its champion. Thanks, Vince Russo, you (laughs) hack writer. But I can see why Gail Weathers was pining for Dewey and like pining for a time when somebody basically hero worshipped her in a relationship to a certain extent. Um, That really does not help when he's introduced in the visual splendor of gray sports coat over abandoned pool green polo over white tee yes. over David Arquette probably lifting too many weights. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
is real vision. <laughs> Here's the highlight of the the movie for me, though, is Parker Posey. Parker, like, if you reduce this movie down to just the Parker Posey scenes and everywhere where she's reacting to other people, this might be the most entertaining film of that particular year. Well, that's the problem is, is she's in a mostly different movie from everybody else. And it's the she, only movie I like. She, she's a, she's basically a Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's, the, it's the best part of the movie is her just moving her eyes all over the place and, and trying to fuck with people to get them into a Christopher Guest movie they're not aware they're in. It is the, every part of that. I love. She's a delight. That character, Jennifer Jolie, is an absolute delight um, because you can <laughs> feel that she's trying to go full method in yeah. this role. And it is like, you know, your favorite third grade niece <laughs> getting the role of like the, you know, the tortoise and the tortoise and hare production for the school play and really going yeah. for it and thinking like this is going to launch them. Like the next thing is they're going to be starring is the wicked witch in, in <laughs> wicked, like really just going for it in a way that is absolutely a delight to watch every moment that she is on the screen. The scene in which they learn that screen three is going to be shut down and Dewey and Gail walk out of the room and she just launches herself into Patrick Warburton's arms. Like that part, that part I like. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, that, that part got a chuckle out of me. I must have seen that. This might be my fourth or fifth time seeing this movie. I've always laughed for two minutes straight afterwards. It is without a doubt one of the funniest fucking performances in in the Scream franchise. Hands down, it is the funniest performance. It, it is just unfucking believable how good it is. She's just yeah. possessed and in her own film. And I kind of wish everyone else was in the same film, but this movie's already confused enough as it is. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, let's, let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, let's talk about the first character uh, that comes uh, into this, which is Cotton Weary. Don't get, back. don't get attached to him. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, he's wearing a white sweater underneath a white mm -hmm. coat. Which he insisted that he is able to remove because he had been working <laughs> out, getting ready for that X-Men. He was like, I have to be able to show off the guns, maybe. Yeah. yeah. And listen, he's in the peak of health here. Congratulations to him. I don't know what the fuck he's dressed in. That is a wild goddamn look for on camera. But yeah, okay. yeah. Some, somehow he has parlayed his uh, his experience to becoming the number one talk show host in America. And I'm like, I'm like, all right, I love sure. That. Why not? sure. <laughs> okay. I love that he is the Jenny Jones of the Scream <laughs> universe. It's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> He's killed for wearing white after Labor Day, <laughs> right? Much. I mean, that's why. I think for how good that all white outfit is going to look once it explodes on. Oh him, yeah, is what it comes down to. Uh, so he's on his way home, and we're we're told that he's driving the 101 South near the Hollywood Bowl, but he is not. That is the Long Beach downtown Long Beach entrance to the 710 that we also saw previously on this podcast, Gina on Cobra. Right, uh, that's correct. Place. Yes. 
So nice try, Scream 3. Fuck you. I know my Los Angeles off ramps. Uh, anyways, he does end up like all over <laughs> fucking Hollywood. Um, but he gets a phone call from what might be like a random thing that it might be some other fan. It turns out to be Ghostface who can now switch into any voice he wants. To. Oh my God, this drove me so mad. Yeah. That this, you know, this voice changing technology has, has, you know, upgraded from just kind of giving you a sort of, you know, nondescript like robot voice mm-hmm. to now you can imitate every single person, whoever you want, even if they've been dead for a couple of years. Yeah. The imitating the dead person is a particularly sticky wicket for me. <laughs> like, I don't think that's a possible thing that can ever really happen. I, where would he have gotten her voice? It's it's fucking wild. And how does she have like whispers? Like, do you set it down to whispers where she goes, hey, Sydney, I'm around here. Like, how did you get her? F- oh, my God. I know movie. I know, It's a movie. It's a fucking movie. I get it. But I don't hate the idea of pulling a predator on people. It's just that you don't have alien technology. So don't tell me that her dead mother can whisper to her. That's just not a possibility. Yeah. And they introduce, they start to introduce this weird supernatural element with Sydney's mom. It starts to kind of tiptoe down that road and then it completely drops it and never ever considers it again. It's a very bizarre choice like that nightmare scene with like Sydney's mom in a little Mm -hmm. nightgown making the creepy faces outside the window. Like it feels like it belongs in a completely different movie and it was inserted in as a joke. uh, For a second there, I thought you said Creedy and I thought we had another Creed connection here. Oh no. Listen, we we have enough. Anyways, it turns out that, yeah, that, that Ghostface Killer is threatening his girlfriend. So he drives through uh you know downtown hollywood as fast as he can you know much better than charles bronson did in 10 to midnight i think gina we have to agree he's much better at this that that's true i mean charles bronson is just like complaining like oh i can't believe i have to stop at another red light (laughs) where it's at least cotton's got purpose because he's got to get home because his girlfriend christine played by kelly rutherford yet 2000 now personified <laughs> in one blonde is is in mortal danger now when she detects uh what she thinks is someone in the house one of the things that she says out loud is oh cotton i'm not in the mood for one of your stab games which stab uh, game <laughs> stab what games. is going on oh what now are have our have our sexual games become too complicated he is getting off on the fact that he is involved in multiple homicides what the fuck well i don't yeah i don't like to kink shame but that may be a step too far yeah. at that point Listen, that is far be it else. from us we have a long history we don't like to yuck people's yums but that shit is yucky so don't murder play if you've been involved in the murders. So, yeah, uh, she ends up getting uh, stabbed in the back and Cotton gets a couple slashes and finally stabbed in the chest. And if that's what you were looking for, for a cold open for Scream, you got it. 
I guess. I mean, this is the first warning bell that I don't, I don't fucking like this movie. If you think if this is a big whammy for you. It, it just seemed like, you know, okay, well, this is a character we have to get rid of. Yes. We can't have them around. And we have to give him a grand goodbye, which I don't think you have to do. He's not that vital to the proceedings, to be honest with you. No, like, I mean, if you just if you just mention the like, oh, Cotton's got a radio show. All right. Yeah. Good for, <laughs> would be funny. Good for He's him. He's on the radio in New York. Like that would have worked. Yeah. I mean, good for you. You know, rock, <laughs> rock on. I'm glad yeah. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you, you made the best of the situation. So they're both dispatched. Hardly knew you. I'm sorry, Kelly Rutherford, for the career that you were given. You were probably better than this. This means it's time to shift to uh, the lead of this motion picture, who's barely in it, and that is Sydney. Uh, Sydney, we find out is, you know, she's the kind of girl who still has post bills of her show in college up on the wall. Do you think she really needs to memorialize that particular production in college, considering, I don't know, several people died during it? Yeah, on stage? It, it kind of suggests that they actually they still went ahead and did the show. <laughs> like they, they went dark for a week and they were like, I don't know, you think you still want to do it? Because like we got all the costumes. You so know, they, they, they cut down her boy for her murdered boyfriend and, you know, <laughs> come on, got to go out the show. That's entertainment, baby. The show must go on. Every production has a couple of dead bodies that are strung to various set pieces. I mean, that's that's just the way it should, works. Should have said Macbeth. <laughs> I, I, and I thought the rule was in college, if your roommate died, you got like an instant 4.0 for the <laughs> yeah. semester. So I just wonder if, if she could parlay the roommate slash hometown friend slash boyfriend Ugh. dying if that's instant like you graduate <laughs> salutorian and on the spot here's you your degree an advanced degree thrown yeah. in there just like slid across the desk yeah. <laughs> it is weird that she would memorialize a show where her boyfriend was yeah killed a, due to her like not trusting yeah, him. it's a non-choice I, that's not really a memory i think she would hold on to dearly by pinning it to her <laughs> little pegboard there but even uh, here's the other thing like they make a kind of concerted effort to show that she has security like she has a security thing inside her front door but she also has a gate which has a code key on it the problem with this of course is that if you're going to have this sort of protected gate it should be high enough that i can't just leap over it if i get a good three or four step you know, lead up to <laughs> like, it's not a, t- a tall gate. You could, even if, even if you weren't the uh, most uh, athletically uh, possessed person, you could still like put your tummy up and kind of hoist your way up with your elbows. Like your kid does in a pool. It's not a tall gate. That's not where you need passcode security. Everyone. <laughs> Being, being an early 2000 movie, maybe at one point they thought Vern <laughs> Troyer was going to be the you killer. You know what? I mean, honestly, it wouldn't have shocked me at that point. See, that is a much better screen <laughs> story. If, if Vern Troyer uh, yeah, is Vern, one of the killers Vern, Vern Troyer and, and, and Wiener Dog teamed up together, I mean, my God. <laughs> That's all I want now. If someone can make up a new poster for Scream Three that includes Vern Troyer and Wiener Dog, I think I think we could re we put this in theaters. We could just relaunch it. It'd be fine. People would love it. 
God. <laughs> Somebody, Somebody would. would somewhere. I, I, I don't know if I want to meet that person. Well, you know, I honest, love it, honestly, I would love it a lot would. more than, than, than dipping from the Sydney's mom's a slut well again. I mean, oh, I mean, I would hmm. really, yes. really like anything else other than that. This, it is so weird that now for the third movie, we are constantly going back to the sins of this woman who just wanted to get some. Like, obviously, I mean, there are some cons- moral failures. Consider how many people have been killed by this point because this woman was a little promiscuous. <laughs> I mean, just like, mm-hmm. consider, I mean, we have all been, we all undoubtedly have been cheated on at some point in, 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 yeah. in our romantic lives. Like, imagine everybody just going out and starting a murder spree. <laughs> not you, know, you, not the person who wronged us. Not only them, just like everybody remotely associated with them. It's like a butterfly effect from her vagina to everyone else in this four movie series, where everyone has to die you know, her, because she slept around a little. Her her lack of faithfulness, you know, has driven not one, not two, not three. Not four, five separate people to murder. (laughs) That's a little, that's one of those things when you think about it more than a minute or two, you're like, nah, that doesn't work for me. No, it's really hard to pin it on. And listen, this is one of the reasons I wanted to have Mike on for this particular episode. Because I mm-hmm. think my original concept is like we would talk about the Hollywoodness of of this all, but to be honest with you, it's not particularly faithful to what Hollywood really is or what a production feels like. Mm-hmm. It it really has more to do with PTSD and generational it trauma. Does. Like it is more the psychological, and I don't fault it for wanting to get into those areas and how it affects these characters. I just don't think it does a particularly good job of really rooting this in any sort of psychological truth as far as a therapeutic examination of it. And why should it be? It's supposed to be a horror movie. But then again, it keeps asking these questions and presenting these problems. We talked about Sidney's arc on Mm -hmm. psychoanalysis. Um, we talked specifically the first three movies in her arc, and we covered PTSD. Um, but before we get to her, like we're talking about the way that Maureen Prescott yeah. is treated in these three movies, like the idea that because she was promiscuous, people have to die. What really happens to Maureen Prescott is that she's sexually yeah. assaulted in Hollywood. Like she is basically, you know, John Milton, played by uh, Lance Henriksen, Henriksen basically says like she came to my party she knew the deal it was a you know play to pay type of deal where if you wanted to you know get roles in my movies like you were going to put out no questions asked and that's where the Weinstein connection really comes in here but that's really glossed over like it's really never talked about again I think at one point Gail Weathers says like, yeah, she was gone from Woodsboro for two years. No one knew where she was and she would never, ever speak about this time of her life again. Like no one knew where she was and this trauma. She buried this trauma so deep inside of her that she wouldn't speak about it with anybody. And the way that trauma ended up coming out, because you can only push your 
feelings down for so long before they come out in a variety of different ways. The way that came out was basically the promiscuity. And it wasn't one that was like rooted in her, you know, possibly was rooted in her wanting to maybe reclaim her sexuality a bit or make a connection. I don't know because the films don't really dive too much into it. But rather than treat Maureen Prescott like really the victim that she is, like these three movies really treat her, like you said, uh, Patrick, is like the catalyst for all of this when really she's every bit the victim. I mean, she's a victim and she's murdered off screen and her murder is what triggers the events in Woodsboro one year later. So, yeah, that was weird how this movie hints at her being assaulted but then glosses over it and chalks everything up to her just being like, even the way she treats Roman, like she slams the door in his face and wants nothing to do with him. And that's kind of understandable. Like if someone showed up on your doorstep and said, hey, I am the child, you know, that you gave away and you were born out Dramatic of this experience. Yeah. Time of your life. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I don't the problem falter. Is that they, they, they level this whole, well, you know, she was actually raped and then nothing happens to Milton. Like nothing happens to him. We we, mm-hmm. we get no sort of satisfying comeuppance from that. Yeah. I mean, he gets yeah. like stabbed a little bit and thrown on the floor. Like his crimes are not brought to light. That's not a, they don't take it to the press. They don't, or even threaten it. Like, oh, I'm going to blow your shit up. Like you, you won't ever hear the end of this. Yeah. Instead, we get a very long monologue in his office where he talks about how this town is full of criminals that are working all the time and just blaring police lights <laughs> around this particular statement should be played in court. Like, holy fuck. It's no, you're right. It is goddamn wild. The only time I've really ever seen something like this particular thing where someone tells something so clearly through a movie is uh, it was called paparazzi and the movie was conceived of and executive uh, produced by Mel Gibson. And in it, the biggest movie star in the world, his family is killed when the paparazzi take his photograph while he's driving away from a premiere and he goes about killing all of them one by one. And you sort of think, this is what Mel Gibson wants to do. Yes. He he thought about like, you know, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to kill the paparazzi and I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to get rid of my wife in one fell go and I'd blame it on them. And then I'd accuse a couple of them of murder and then they'd be put away. And then I'd be free to go and have sex with anyone I want and accuse them of having sex with black people. That's my Australian accent, everyone. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> I just accused That's Mel Gibson of excellent. wanting to kill people because he does it enough. Why shouldn't I? Right. I mean, yeah, he's it's something that he hasn't said aloud many times. No, he just made a fucking movie about it. <laughs> Not not only not only did he make a movie about it, but he asked his friends to be in it. In it, Chris Rock, who was at the time the biggest comedy star on the planet, plays a pizza delivery guy. 
for no fucking reason. Of course. Because Chris Rock shows up as a pizza delivery guy just so Mel Gibson can make a movie about how he wants to kill photographers. <laughs> that I mean, That is a real fucking thing that happened. Oh. And weirdly enough, like this is kind of worse because as far as I'm aware, Mel Gibson has not killed any photographers. That but I know do of. know that Harvey Weinstein sexually assaulted right. and raped multiple people within this industry. Yes. Well, there's also... Um, uh, going back to the mid '90s, the movie "Swimming with Sharks," yes. which is apparently right. a, about Scott mm-hmm. Rudin, uh, mm-hmm. and you know very much so. And it took literally about 25 years so for anybody to finally just you know actually say something about him directly. And also, weirdly enough, starring a person who would later be credibly uh, accused of sexual assault multiple times, and those accusers when they try to bring those cases to court, mysteriously die. So there's that. What fun, what what a fun, happy podcast we have. <laughs> Filled with sexual assault and murder. God, God bless you. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'll never forgive Scream 3 for bringing us to this point. It's, I don't, I don't think Scream 3 is the reason why Kevin Spacey is no, a creep. No, stop making excuses for it. This is Scream 3's fault. This is, this is, that's, that is, that is a high crime to accuse a movie of. Um, what I do love about Sydney is the mm-hmm. way that I mean, she comes into the first movie already suffering from trauma. Like she's still recovering from the death of her mother a year ago. Her dad is absentee. Like you can tell, like he's on the road as much as possible because he can't really deal with everything. Not only discovering his wife like cheated on him, but also that like she was murdered for it. And like the scandal of that, you see her kind of recovering in the second movie a year later, but the third movie She's kind of become a recluse. Well, not kind of. She's become a recluse. Like, no one knows where she is. She's doing things in her own terms. And what I do love, and she's actually, she's wearing the necklace that Jerry O'Connell gave to her in the second movie. Like, she wears that throughout this movie, which is kind of a nice little costuming touch. She's trying to help other victims and other survivors, like, by... I don't know if it's her job or she's volunteering for a crisis line, but that is like her way to kind of come to terms with what's happened to her. Um, And I know that, you know, she doesn't really, really appear in the movie until about the hour mark of it because of only being available for under three weeks. But when she does emerge in this movie, she emerges on her own terms. Like she decides that she's going to like, no one forces her to make an appearance Um, she decides, okay, my friends need me. I'm going to do what I can to help them out. And she's at the very least trying to solve this on her own terms rather than be someone who's constantly on the run. Um, and I think that the very end of this movie, when, you know, her, she's going to sit down with, you know, McDreamy, the detective and Gail and Dewey, when the door opens and she just looks at it, and doesn't run over to slam it closed, but just acknowledges it's open and goes to join her friends. Like it is, you know, and I like Scream 3 obviously more than both of you, but I acknowledge like of the four Scream movies, it would be my bottom one. And I love all the Scream movies. I think it's the perfect capper to the original trilogy. Like that little moment feels so earned and so wonderful and just such a a great statement on how 
you can eventually move past your trauma. You can do the work and it's not that you'll ever forget it, but you don't have to let it define you for the rest of your life either. So I love, I think that last moment does a lot of the work to kind of, at least in my eyes, to redeem some of the more egregious things about this movie. Well, I like what they, I like what they did with her. I, I, I found that the whole working for a, uh, a crisis hotline was, was pretty good. I, I liked that. It just, it, it just didn't go with the rest of the movie. All the parodying Hollywood bullshit. It's like, no, no, I'm just, I am not at all interested yeah. in that. But I, 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 mm-hmm. I agree with you that, that I, I liked the way it ended. I, I thought that mm-hmm. that was, that was pretty well done. Yeah. And the idea of it was sort of refract, reflect, reflecting and refracting the first movie and having her having to, I think the one standout, you know, thriller suspense sequence of it is the inside the Woodsboro set where her, her house is now jumbled from where it used to be. Her upstairs Mm -hmm. bedroom is now on the first floor because that's the way they would shoot it. And that, you know, she's going through this house that the first movie ended in and walking into a different house and how it plays with, that sort of expectation thing that Scream 2 did very, very well as, in addition to this, that that's stuff I like. Where I feel it is somewhat let down is that yeah. some of the character moments for Gail and, you know, for Dewey are just kind of, I think they're waylaid because they end up getting the bulk of the plot delivery system of the motion picture. And on top of that, the Hollywood stuff seems needlessly navel gazing. I mean, I, I there's meta and then there is just, just like well, the only thing we have is to comment on the fact that this is a movie. And that's what it feels like. It's what they were left with because the original concept of this, as it was built in the outline was that you had Matthew Lillard's character was alive in jail and that he was secretly corresponding with duos of young people and forcing them to commit murders uh, under his tutelage. Now, why didn't they do that? Because that actually makes more sense to me and is more plausible than than the... the the motivation and in, in, in what they ended up going with. So here's the, here's the problem. It was that got it scuttled, which is Columbine where a duo of young people went out. Uh, well, okay. All murder. right. Yeah. I knew, I knew that they, I know that they toned it down a lot for Columbine, which, which, yeah. which kind of makes you wonder, you know, yeah. why did you bother? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, mean I, okay. I, I get that the idea is you know, dollar sign, dollar sign, dollar sign, but, but, Right. At this point, if you have to, you know, you no pun intended, you know, gut the concept of your original movie because you don't want to even inadvertently give anybody the impression that you're, you know, sort of encouraging or endorsing this behavior. It just don't bother. <laughs> just honest to God, don't bother. No, I think the Weinsteins were cash poor. Yeah. This is the, the, the we're getting into a moment in time where their constant buying and repackaging of motion pictures was petering out for them. 
as an institution. Disney was souring them on them as a company and they were just desperate. They were desperate for anything that would make them money and Scream was the thing that was making them buttloads of money. And I think they had deals on the table with the primary people involved in this and there was a time in which they could make it. Otherwise, they would have to make new deals. And so they were desperate. And they just fucking, they're like, Scream 2 worked out. Get out there, guys. Just make it fucking work. And they pushed it into being. And I think Aaron Kruger looked around and said, well, why don't we make this about making Scream? And everyone's like, I I guess. And then they were making a movie. So all, all the scenes in which people go, oh, fuck it. There's new script pages. We can't even learn our lines. That's this movie. They're just talking about making this movie. Yeah. And I know Craven, Craven was on the record both with this movie and I believe Scream 4, which Kruger also gets involved in to like rewrite Williamson's uh, material. And Craven was very on the record outspoken of saying like, I rewrote a lot of Kruger stuff. Like we just didn't go with it. Yeah. Um, Because it just, he was like, he basically says Kruger seems to have like a fundamental misunderstanding of what makes our core characters work in these movies. Um, At one point there was talk about there being like no bloodletting in the movie, (laughs) that it was going to just be like a completely bloodless slasher movie to which Craven said, you know, like it's a scream movie. Like, you know, I think sometimes I had forgotten after I had stopped watching the first movie for a while, how brutal some of the kills actually are in that movie. Like, it's a pretty gory movie. And they wanted to, and this one does feel much more, aside from maybe Cotton's death, much more toned down than the other movies do because of a lot of the backlash and violence in media and what that was doing to, you know, think of the children. Mm -hmm. It seemed like that was rearing its ugly head again. And now it honestly feels like the Wild West, like you can pretty much get away with everything. Oh, you could get away with more on basic cable right now. Hannibal is insane. That that happened on NBC for Christ's sakes, and uh, yeah, this is a this is a PG thirteen church choir in comparison yeah. to that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and, and when in the previous movies, we've always talked about how, in a way, they are reflections of how Wes Craven feels about horror and his participation in it. In Scream, Williamson has a very distinct point of view where he where he says out loud movies do not create psychos that then then is not a thing and while craven believes that he also feels like what it they're not always contributing the best things to a society mm-hmm. you already see that with new nightmare where he's really reflecting on his legacy as a filmmaker going is this something that is while while it has always been a part of it, are we exercising demons or are we giving them a place to exercise? And Scream 2 is, can you move past that? You know, and then it's, there's, a, there's a lot of technical brilliance in both films and, I, and it, it, they both sing. And here, I feel like he, part of the uh, appeal of making it about Hollywood is to point to this, you know, kind of 
gross feeling that you're that 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 violence is part of a product and that's all it is and everyone hates being a part of it no. and deep down he resents himself for doing it but i just don't think that component of it is given wings the way it is in new nightmare and scream one and scream two mm-hmm. yeah to me it feels like another one of these movies and then these have come up for us before, Patrick, where it feels like the people involved don't actually like horror movies. And, yeah. and but that, that obviously is not true for Wes Craven, but it sort of feels like everybody is just sort of not really wanting to do this movie, that it's a cash grab. And, and, and when you have that mixed with a sort of anti, you know, casting couch greed, Plus, you know, slut shaming at the same time. It, yeah. It's like, I, I don't know what you're trying to say here. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what this movie is about. I don't know what my focus is supposed to be on. I don't think Wes Craven knows what it's about 100% either. Um, I don't think he was given one, enough time. Yeah. At, at one point, he has the character of Roman, is acts like a mouthpiece, mouthpiece for Craven when he's like opining about the movie getting shut down, he's like, I wanted to make a romantic comedy. And I was told I have to make a horror movie before I can actually make that. And this is the time where like Wes Craven wants to make music of the heart, which he went on to do with Meryl Streep. Um, But he was told like, if you want to make music of the heart, the only way we're going to give you the funding for that is you have to make Scream 3. So it feels like, as much as like Scream 1 is an absolute shot in the arm for Wes Craven in, v, uh, in terms of like how, I mean, this is a guy who like in three decades in the 70s, he really went on to define what exploitation fare can look like. Uh, in the 80s, A Nightmare in Elm Street launches the best franchise of any of the 80s slashers and the most imaginative of them. And then in like mid 90s, when Scream comes out, it comes out at a time when horror was definitely on the downswing, at least theatrically. So this is a guy who in three decades took massive shots and hit them out of the park each time. But now he's like, what else does he have to say at this point? Especially only being three, four years removed from Scream 1 and Scream 2. He's like, let me do some other things at this point. Like, there's more I can do. Yeah, it's a weird place that he's put into. And so part of the film is like revealing their true feelings about being involved in it. And then some of it just seems so disconnected. I mean, mm-hmm. I think we'll probably end up talking about it a little bit more in screen four, but just his pathway through that post scream aftermath is, is wild because you have music of the heart, which uh, happens in between it's scream two, then music of the heart, mm-hmm. then scream three. Um, so yeah, he's on the hook and so he's able to do the one thing. It doesn't fire at the same level. It is a good movie. It's probably not a great movie. Scream three is very muddled and he, and he, then he goes right into cursed, which at least he's working with Williamson, but then he's still working with dimension who just fuck him into the ground Mm -hmm. on that motion picture to the point where it's essentially made three times three times to make a fucking werewolf movie which is now only remembered for a werewolf flipping off the camera that's it (laughs) like that's that is the sole redeeming feature of cursed is there's the gif of the werewolf flipping off a camera 
someone out there. You just broke Ryan Larson's heart right now. Poor. Uh, listen, our it won't be the Ryan. first time I've broken Brian Larson's heart <laughs> what I've said about a particular movie. So I'm sorry, Ryan, but it's the fucking truth. Listen, someone should love it. Every movie should have a defender. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. But that same year is Red Eye. And Red Eye fucks. Red Eye yeah. is amazeballs. It is yeah. fan-fucking-tastic. It is Craven's Hitchcock-level movie. It is just a tight little thriller. It's great performances. It knows exactly what it wants to do and how it wants to do it. He is on point throughout. It is genius in comparison to Cursed and to most motion pictures. It is just fantastic. And then you have five years later, it's like, I don't know, my soul to take. (laughs) 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 Yeah, you can do like, there's, there's, there's a, you know, a big difference when Wes Craven is really into the material he's working on and when he isn't. And here he, he is not. No, no, no. Did Have either of you seen um, Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back? Regrettably. Yeah. Okay. So I, there's a scene in that movie, there's a little cameo with Gus Van Sant where they're trying to get, where Damon is trying to get direction from him. And it's just Van Sant, like sitting over a table, counting his money Mm -hmm. going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whatever guys, you know, just like totally disinterested. And it does feel like there's a little bit of that going on right here. Just like, all right, we got to do it. But like you said, Gina, his heart's not into it, which I, it'll be interesting. I can't wait to hear your take on Scream 4, uh, especially if it's a first time watch for you, Gina, because I feel like that is a movie that is so prescient and predicts so much of like influencer culture and what is unfortunately coming down the pike like a, just a few years later. Um, that movie feels like a complete breath of fresh air. And to me... It's the second best in the series. And I think it took a long time for that movie to get its reevaluation, but it's come. And I think people are starting to really appreciate what that one had to offer. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And, and when I went into watching this, I, I knew that it was the least well regarded in the series. I, I'm just kind of surprised by how little of it actually works because Mm -hmm. the first two were just so well done and so efficient and they weren't trying to do three different things at one time and and everybody involved was absolutely thrilled to be there and just putting their all into it and here everybody's just like yeah whatever yeah Yeah. you know some people some people are in a horror movie some people are in a comedy it 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 doesn't matter none of it matters it's just it's just a cash grab it it could have been um subtitled contractual obligation yes exactly (laughs) exactly you know the the indifference and annoyance of the characters in the movie sort of reflect how that's what it feels like to the audience too that, Mm -hmm. that everybody involved was just indifferent and annoyed about it everything has to all the plot now has to be piled into uh gale and dewey you have all these periphery characters which are just never built up they just exist to exist like emily Mm -hmm. mortimer who's let's just come out and say like a truly great and gifted actress given nothing to do here yeah absolutely set adrift like at one point she gets a whole boot herring scene gina in the bathroom where she's in the boots like 
it's telling you right there that she's a fucking suspect. And the and the movie just doesn't even like bother to show you the boots. No, it's fucking it's wild that it just doesn't care. You have Dion Richmond playing a, a character named Tyson, who you know tells you like I all these deaths are happening, but I can't walk away from this movie because I'm in competition with Usher and L Cool J. And like, okay, I mean, you you have a point with like what it's like to be a black actor trying to work in Hollywood. But now we're bringing LL Cool J into this shit? Like, what the fuck is happening here? It's so confused to the point. And then you have Jenny McCarthy, who is playing uh, uh, Jenny McCarthy. <laughs> like, that's not a character. Yeah. She just fucking exists. Yeah. I, I, the, the, the part where the movie really lost me, other, other than the Jay and Silent Bob cameo, which I'm just like, <laughs> I, I think I literally said, oh, fuck you, movie, out loud. Um <laughs> I mean, Miramax 2000, am I right? But uh, yeah, um, it, it's again, this just Randy's sister popping up out of nowhere, a character we've never seen before that we never knew existed. And, and she just sort of appears on the studio a lot like she knew to be there, which which <laughs> is puzzling to me. Like, how did she know? How did she know where to go? where to find them. And she's like, Oh, I have a message for you. <laughs> I brought a videotape and they let me onto the lot. It's a videotape it of Randy explaining how third movies and franchises work. And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> we know how, how third movies and franchises work. These are the the people who are watching the third movie in a franchise know how third movies and franchises work. You, you don't need to explain it. You don't need to say, oh, well, you know, Sid might could get killed because, you know, she's not going to get killed. Yeah. Well, that's the here's the fucking thing. But why not? She, she could have been. Why not? She could have been. Yes, you, absolutely. You, why tease that and then not do it? I, I don't know. It feels like Aaron Kruger trying to, who, uh, as previously stated by Mike, may not have understood what the point of these characters are because up until this point, Randy has been the quote unquote expert who manages to get all the things wrong right. about horror movies. And in this one, he's like, he's like accurately predicting how the end of the movie is going to be. It's like, well, how did he get this fucking character development after being stabbed to death in a van? He couldn't get what was going to happen in Scream 2, right? Why would he get what's right in Scream 3? And did he, he doesn't and, and, fucking understand what Randy is. I mean, and, and did he, like, foresee his own death and and and, <laughs> and make this video to, you know, send it, you know, to, to Sydney at some undisclosed time? He I did. I don't know. How this, how this Randy fits into Scream 2's Randy is just out to fucking lunch i don't know how this is goddamn possible and not to say that he wouldn't make a videotape but the fact that he's right oh, oh. it does this thing that i hate where like a character on a videotape and the another character have like an almost conversation like that kind of banter like you slept with who and it's like shut up and i hate when that happens <laughs> Um, but also like to me, it absolutely blows my mind that there is a point in human history where Jamie Kennedy had so much pop culture cachet that they're like, we have to include this character in the movie, no matter how poorly shoehorned it is and how yeah, it doesn't that's how really I feel. fit. They, it's like having, they, they, they had to have cotton in there. No, you didn't have to have cotton in there. 
You know, he, he's no. he's a he's a side character. You, right. you you did not have to have him in there. His his storyline was resolved. He was he was you know he was you absolved of his you know, supposed crime. It turned out he was not a creep, although he kind of comes off like a creep in this. And he's a kind of creep. And apparently is a creep who plays weird sex games that mm-hmm. they kind of hint at. Then they say, well, we have to have Randy. The kids love Randy. And I, I, I guess, sure. But just using uh, the using this plot device of the sister, I'm like, you know, don't have the sister show up and then, you know, not do anything with her. No. She just appears, plays a videotape, and then just practically turns into a bat on her kind of comes a little kind of comes off a little creepy mm-hmm. which yeah. which you know sort of feels like they were supposed to do something with her originally yeah, and you know I, upon you know, rewrite six or so they they <laughs> just decide to leave her in this scene which makes no sense to the context of the story uh, i did enjoy seeing a random bust of bebop from teenage mutant ninja turtles in roman's office just out of fucking nowhere <laughs> between that and the creed poster i what is what universe does this exist in why does he have a bust of bebop it makes no fucking sense it just everyone hates everyone gail shows up at one point again another character festooned in an off-white turtleneck with off-white zip-up hoodie but then she's wearing Eddie Murphy's raw red leather pants as a bottom <laughs> to it. Like she's just gone for a run in Malibu. It just does not make any goddamn sense whatsoever. Patrick Warburton's okay. He's <laughs> always a welcome presence. Uh, Patrick Warburton is always a welcome presence in anything he does. True. Very true. Always, always playing Patrick Warburton. Yeah, that's right. Whether he's, you know, getting you online for a ride at Disneyland or playing someone's bodyguard, he's always kind of putty at the end of yes. the day. It should be noted that Matt Kessler, last seen uh, previous to this film as the hunky Johnny Savage in Waiting for Guffman. Yes. Who uh, <laughs> went on to play nonstop assholes until he just up and retired from the business. And now he's a physician assistant. All so right. Good for him. Yep. God bless. Yeah. <laughs> Way to go, man. She went out on top, I guess. Also, if you ha- if you, you said, like, Patrick, like, what's a reason to watch this movie? And I would say, watch it with the sound really turned up when after the entire house blows up with Matt Kessler inside and you see and you have Gail and Dewey uh, falling down this hill. You can also hear Parker Posey. Who's with them? Yeah, so that, yeah. You can. You don't even have to turn a set up. You have your. You have your closed captioning on. It'll pop up. And she says, "Falling still, damn it! Like, I can't. Okay. I can't stop falling down, rolling down this hill." <laughs> Listen, she's in a, she's she's no no shade on her. She was great. She's just in an entirely different movie, though. Yes, but thank God someone was in a different movie. Oh, speaking of of weird movie confluences, did any of you notice that when Randy says the word tra- uh, trilogy in his video, that the soundtrack goes? I did not notice that. No, I didn't either. But I had my air conditioner. I watched it with headphones on. The only reason I know. Yeah, I had my air conditioner on. I probably was not able to hear it. My hearing is so bad after spending all of my like teens, 20s and 30s at little punk shows and standing right next to the PA going like, who needs earbuds? Um, <laughs> that, yeah, it is. I am quickly approaching subtitles for everything territory. Yeah, no, I, I think it enhances everything. 
Uh, one of my favorite Parker Posey lines and her line ratings are, you're obsessed with her and you're <laughs> obsessed with her daughter. I want that audio clip and I just want it isolated so I can use it for the rest of my life. I'm not sure for what, but I find it just delightful. Fucking delightful. She is, and it took me a long time to come around on her character, but she is a delight in this movie to watch because I think that it would be too dour because again, like you said, like the the red shirt characters, the ones that exist basically because you need a body count, there's nothing to any of them. And the first two Scream movies, like part of why those movies work is like you feel a real connection to Tatum. You know, like you feel you, I mean, Randy's death is still debated to this day. Like there are people that, you know, really hated that Randy died in the second movie. Like you really like these characters a lot. There is enough there for you to feel connected to them here. Like all of your victims are like they're, they're red shirts in Star Trek. Like they, there's nothing to them. They're a trope. No, they exist to be cut down. It is everything that Scream was designed not to be. And that's why ultimately is like the greatest sin of the motion Mm -hmm. picture. It's not to say that there aren't enjoyable components to it and falling on the heels of the sort of technical brilliance of scream two. I feel like scream three really does, uh, is not the best Avenue for suspense sequences outside Mm -hmm. of the Woodsboro set. I don't feel anything in the last 45 minutes, which really should be a setup to be a great fun house because you have secret passages, you have hidden perv components where people are trapped behind glass, which again, another callback to Scream 2, but it's not doing it as well. And so ultimately, it just becomes an empty echo. It doesn't have the same resonance as as the first use of it. Mm-hmm. And you, you have a sequence set up where it looks like Gail's going to have to crawl over Ghostface's body to get out of the basement, and instead she calls Dewey and they have this who's on first going on mm-hmm. where he thinks that she might be Ghostface using the voice changer. And it's like, Jesus Christ, this is really undercutting the tension here. What, what, what is the point? What is the goal? Stay on task. And the movie just can't quite do it for me. I do enjoy that last act. And they're in that Roman's uh not Milton's house for almost an hour at the end of this movie. I do enjoy the kind of, like Gina, you put the Scooby-Doo-ness of that part of the movie. I think there are some sequences that work really well. I think when Emily Mortimer's character is killed and she's lying at the foot of the stairs and they're looking down at her and the body like just gets dragged off. Like, I love that sequence right there like that actually creeped me out see i would um, like that more if emily mortimer then pops up alive sure after that sure and that was all for show it really undercuts that all of this feels like they set things up and then people keep pulling rugs out from mm-hmm. underneath them to really execute at the highest level and i i I I can't judge this movie on what it isn't. I can only judge yeah. it on what it is. And so while I do like the Nightmare on Elm Street reference there of pulling mm-hmm. a dead body away, like I do like it, but I think I would love it if, you know what I mean? I, I get you. I think you've had two movies, though, where you have a pair of killers. So, you know, going into this one as an audience, like you're expecting that. So to have it just be the one killer almost subverts what 
the other Scream movies have done. And then the thing with like the two way mirrors in the bedroom, like what hit me on this last rewatch was like um, before, I'm like, why would somebody have that in their Oh, like it just hit me. Like why somebody would have that in their master bedroom, like the voyeurism aspect of it. And most likely given that character's um, proclivities, like, the non-consensual voyeurism Mm -hmm. aspect of it. And it's kind of a way, again, to like tip the hand at the creepiness of like John Milton and like that Hollywood producer character. So I really like a lot of the last part of this movie. I think that's where it actually finds like a really good amount of energy and becomes a lot more fun. And I love the physicality between... Roman and Sydney in their kind of battle. Like it becomes like a pretty brutal affair. And also uh, when we talk about Roman, I guess we'll get into like this, the basically the fuck off that he gets, like the whole speech that Sydney gives him to basically be like fucking grow up and get over yourself, dude. Yeah. So I think that pretty much uh, with the exception, <laughs> this is the one thing that I mm-hmm. don't, I'm not sure about, and I'm hoping either of you can help me with this. Now, at one point, Kincaid, the long hair of the law, shows up and he they have sort of a red herring showdown between him and Sydney. And then uh, Ghostface shows up and they have a, a fist fight. He ends up taking a face full of chimney and uh, falls <laughs> to the ground. So he that's in the living room. Fast forward towards the end of the movie after... After uh, Gail and Dewey have broken their way into the secret screening room. This is a separate room. And then Gail looks over and goes, hey, are, are Kincaid, are you all right? How the fuck did he end up in that room? Did he, did, was there he, a, a, some yeah, sort he, of Harry Potter flume? Where no, he, he went found the another way into in. another fucking fireplace? He, he found another way in when the power went out. Like he's the one that picks the lock. Um, I thought Dewey he, was the one who picked the lock. Because he opens the door and he has like the little gun in his hand and he confronts Sydney and then like ghost faced stabs him again. That's how like ghost, that's how Roman gets the gun that he shoots uh, oh. Sydney with. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I maybe, mean, I had a 430 beer in the afternoon. <laughs> sure. So. And. Yeah, and it's it's hard to follow. Like, it's definitely not. And my understanding is, like, he was shoehorned into the last act of the movie because he wasn't originally in it because, like, the they realized Patrick Dempsey had just sort of disappeared at one point during the movie, never to show up again. So they're like, uh, we got to get him in more of this movie. So yeah, got to get that haircut into every I, frame. Well, I want to know. I know Patrick Dempsey from Can't Buy Me Love, which I rewatched and I was laid up on the couch with a knee injury. And that is a very misleading movie title. Because technically he does <laughs> he absolutely at the does. end of the day. He absolutely he buys does. Love. Some love. Yeah. He uh, buys I mean he buys the love at the end of that movie. So that I felt like I was misled by the title of that movie. The only weirder movie from him is Pizza Boy. Oh my which, god. In which he plays basically a male, a underage male escort. Who works at a pizza joint, and then when <laughs> undersexed uh, milfs order a pizza with extra anchovies, he, that's his cue to go over and have sex with them. That's the movie. <laughs> that's a fucking movie. It is uh, again another thing that should be held up as evidence in court. Um, yeah, that was some. That was some. Uh, there. 
that was from a glorious time when it was funny for, you know, 40 year old women to be chasing after 16 year old boys. <laughs> it's fine because of penis. Anyways, uh, another thing that's fine because of penis is choose your own death venture. And that is where we decide of the deaths presented in this motion picture, which one would you to choose to die from and why up for bid? It's a fuck ton of stabbing. We got stabbed in the back. Uh, hit with a golf club, slashed in the arm, and then stabbed in the chest. You got stabbed in the back, hit with a frying pan. You get uh, blown up real good in a kitchen, but it's in the Hollywood Hills. It's a it's a nice little bungalow kitchen. Uh, then you got stabbed and thrown from a second floor in a way that seems a little redundant, but okay. Then you get stabbed in the gut inside of a perv's closet. And finally... Uh, stabbed in the back twice, stabbed in the chest once, and finally shot in the head. Mike, you're our guest. Uh, I choose you to go first. Oh, boy. There are a lot to choose from there, aren't there? Yeah. Which way do I want to get stabbed? Pretty much. Um, I I don't want to get stabbed in the gut because that would take a long time to die, and that would be uh, horrifying. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going with the quick and easy explosion. Um, I think that would be... You know, I, I think that would be said I could say that I died as I lived like overly gassy um, <laughs> and that would make for a fun joke at my funeral. So I'm going to go death by explosion. That, that works for me. Gina, what say you? Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and just take stabbed in the back the way uh, okay. uh, Cotton Cotton's uh, girlfriend goes. Yeah, she, 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 seems to, she seems to go pretty quick. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think really of these, uh, I don't like heights. Um, and <laughs> I don't like the stabbed in the back and hit with a frying pan because then I'm just walking around for a little bit after that. I, yeah, I think I'm going to have to get exploded in a kitchen. It's the way it goes because then at least I'm reading, uh, faxes and I've always wanted to get a fax and I never really did. Um, we, even, you'll be even getting, when that was the only way I could get Disney to pay me it, it, up until two years ago, they were faxing fucking invoices. And you'll be getting, you'll be getting faxes that will, uh, predict your imminent demise. Yes. Right. Uh, which is the way I read most scripts is seeing when I die next. Uh, when will my great joke be torn asunder and thrown on the ground? Uh, but that's a professional critique that has no uh, meaning here. Uh, before we go, Mike, where can people uh, hear more from you and what you're doing? So I have two podcasts I run. Uh, one of them, or I, I co-host of, I have two shows I'm a co-host of. Uh, my first show is The Pod and the Pendulum, where we cover all horror movie franchises. We do like a different movie uh, every episode. Wait, 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 uh, wait, wait, continue wait, wait, wait. through a series. It, it talks about franchises on a podcast? Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's see how I, that goes for you. you know, I, I had this idea in grad school. Like when I was, I'm like, when I finish grad school, I'm going to start this show. And I and then I'm like, no one's doing this. Then I, the summer I was graduating, stumbled upon both Kill by Kill and Halloweenies. And I'm like, motherfuckers. Um, but I, I'm... As, as competitive as I am, I think all I, I got to say, like, I absolutely adore both your show and Halloweenies. I think they are two of the best shows um, that are out there and they're just a goddamn treat to listen to. 
And uh, I know that Halloweenies is never covering the Critter series. They're not going to, you know, <laughs> deem themselves to go that low. Well, uh, who's so, to say? <laughs> you know, Let's um, not count our chickens yet. <laughs> so I co-host this with Lindsay Travis, who is like the James Brown of the entertainment coverage industry. She's the hardest working woman that I know. And she's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. We just wrapped up the evil dead series and are starting on the conjuring verse uh, next up. So I'm really excited for that. Uh, my other show I run, I uh, co-host with Laura Undersall of uh, losers club and Halloweenies and Jen Adams of losers club and formerly of the horror virgins. We do psychoanalysis, a horror, therapy podcast where every month we tackle a different topic in the mental health field, whether it's anxiety, PS, PTSD, um, what, uh, depression this month, we're doing a little bit fun thing called bad dads. Um, which we just did the stepfather where we do like a clinical look at the topic and then like a fun deep dive into the movie uh, itself. So that has been an absolute blast to do. We do two shows like that every month and then two comfort horror episodes with guests where we just talk about a movie, a horror movie that brings us like joy and love. And it's kind of a form of self care. So that has been a blast to do. And I would say the trick to doing any podcast is work with people that are more brilliant than yourself yeah, I believe and that. ride their coattails. Yeah, so that's right. Listen, in this relationship, Gina is the sniper and I just have a, yes. a crazy Tommy gun. That I fire all over the place. There you go. <laughs> I am really benefiting from my company here. Um, and Gina did uh, an episode with, with, uh, with psychotherapy. Yeah, I did. Yep, with she did. Um, and you were a brief guest, Patrick. We talked about your love of of the Doctor in Nightmare on Elm Street, oh, right. part three. Yeah. Um, but we need to have both of you on Pod and the Pendulum. So I'll send you the list and get to stepping. All right, All right. let's get sure. up. Let's sign up because. Let's make it happen. Like I said. Wonder right. Twins activate. Yeah. Uh, Gina, where can people find you on these here internet? I write about television and movies at the spool.net. Um, in June, I am going to be covering the Tribeca Film Festival. Going to be hanging out with my good friend, Bobby De Niro. You know, have some, have some laughs. Talk sure. about, talk about the de-aging and the Irishman. You know, it's yeah. going to be, it's going to be a good time. I'm, really, I'm looking forward to it. Um, and now, how many questions are, do you have for him about bad grandpa? Because I have several. I have a scroll. Send it. Send, okay, send it to me. I'll I'll add it to the list. Excellent. And and um, I am also on Twitter under porcelain seven two. Do it today, people. Check it out. Of course, you can find us on Twitter and on all the social medias. We're on Letterboxd. Hey, if you want to support us, uh, come on over to Patreon. We have all sorts of good stuff. Uh, the last episode that we have for y'all, we're covering Dead Snow, a uh, a sweet Norwegian, Swedish, uh, Scan- let's just say, movie. let's just say Scandinavian. Yeah, sure. It's of the region. It's foreign. It's got Nazi zombies, which is real unproblematic nowadays. So it was a real delight to dip into our toe into zombies that also happen to be zombies. Um, Oh, fuck that movie. Uh, Anyways, it's fun. Uh, But do it today. Uh, We enjoy that. Uh, Of course, uh, we'll be back next week with more Hannibal. We're continuing dish by dish going through season two, episode by episode. And the week after that, we will be back here on Kill by Kill. Until then, for myself, for Gina and Mike, 
the body count will continue. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>